Father God, thank you so much for uh, this Wednesday night. Thank you that we could gather for this last time in May as we get ready for the summer. Lord, we're so thankful, um, God, for all that you've done. We're thankful for this sermon series uh, through 1 Kings as we wrap it up tonight, the rise and fall of King Solomon and how it really uh, just points to Christ. And I just pray that you would speak through me tonight and that uh, the gospel would become more and more clear to every single student. I pray that you would keep us from distracting our neighbors, from distracting our own hearts with fears and anxieties and things we've got to do. Just clear our heads, clear our hearts, Lord, and, and help us to just give focus to your word um, tonight. And bless the life group times after as they just meditate on what you've done this year and also um, what you've taught us, Lord, through this sermon series. And so we give this night to you in Jesus name. Amen. All right. We're coming. We're bringing first Kings to a close tonight. So turn to first Kings chapter one, actually. All right. Yes. Yes. And one of the questions that will be asked in your life groups is. What is something that God taught you through the sermon series? What is something that God taught you in any of the sermons, something that just stuck with you? And if you weren't here for any of them and this is your first time, then you could, the question would be, what does God teach you through this sermon tonight? My title is The Fall and Rise of God's People. The Fall and Rise of God's People or God's Son. Those who are united to Christ... Right? They're in Christ, so God's people are those who are in Christ. The fall and rise of God's people. Yes, to play on words, because that's what the whole book of Solomon, or Solomon, that's what the whole story of Solomon is pointing to. One of my favorite movies is the Batman trilogy. I've probably talked about it before. Out of those three movies, the Batman Begins... Some of you haven't seen it. It's okay, but you know who Batman is, so that's, that's, that's all right. That's good. There's Batman Begins. The origin story is really great. Scarecrow, awesome. Ra's al Ghul, they're trying to destroy the, you know, it's the whole plot, the whole beginning is really great. Then The Dark Knight Rises with the Joker, you know, Heath Ledger. It's a phenomenal uh, acting, probably the best that you'll ever see um, when you're able to see it, some of you middle schoolers. And then The Dark Knight Rises. Out of those three, The Dark Knight Rises is my favorite. It's one of my favorite stories. One, because it is such a knock on communism and, and Marxism. It really is, because they take over, and then they give Gotham back to the people. You know, Bane with his, his mask. And uh, that, it, it's got really strong uh, themes there. But even more than that is the plot line of, of the story. Bruce Wayne is, thinks he's still got it, and this, you know, he's watching over Gotham, and then Bane comes in, this masked you know, uh, person, and he starts ravaging the city, and he thinks, Bruce Wayne thinks that he could take him. He's still got it, right? And so he goes to fight him, and Bane breaks his back. He breaks his back, and he takes him to this pit, which he calls hell on earth. And Bane says this to him while he throws him into this pit. Every man, who, I'm not going to do it. It's pretty good. Uh, I, I know, I can't do it. Every man who has rotted here over the centuries has looked up to the light and imagined climbing to freedom. 
And so he's in that pit and he's in misery. He's in, he's suffering. Bruce Wayne is. And even to make his suffering worse, he gives him a television to watch Bane and his people destroy the city to make his affliction all the worse. And now he's trying to climb out of this pit to freedom to go and save the city. And that's the rest of the movie. The rise and fall of King Solomon. I mean, first Kings, just like Bruce Wayne, Solomon was high and lifted up. And now he's in the pit. We learned last week. It has come crashing down. And we've been studying this book for a while, tracing that rise and that fall. And though our series is centered on Solomon, the series isn't really about Solomon. The whole goal, whenever we preach in the Old Testament or even the New Testament, is to show you how the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ, is to be central to how we view and understand the Bible. And for many of you, what makes reading the Old Testament really frustrating and really hard is that we don't know how to read it well. Sometimes we, we view the Old Testament like a bunch of stories and we're like, yeah, you need to be a better, you need to be like Daniel or you need to be like Solomon. So we read it very moralistically, right? If you could just be a better you, then you will find salvation or you'll, you'll find joy. But really that is the gospel of, that's the bad news of moralism. That's the bad news of self-righteousness and some people preach it that way. But our whole entire goal through the whole entire series is is to show you the very opposite. That you need to stop trying. (laughs) That like Solomon, you are a wicked sinner. I'm a wicked sinner. We break God's law every single day. Every moment in our thoughts, in our actions, with our words. We can't keep the standard. We're not a good person. And King Solomon... Really, the whole story is to show us, it's not to be like me, but to look to Jesus, who was the perfect person, who lived the perfect life we should have lived, and died the death we deserved. And so every single sermon, every single chapter is foreshadowing the person and work of King King Solomon's future grandson, Jesus Christ. That's what the, the whole Old Testament is leaning forward, trying to get your attention to be like, hey, Look to Jesus, because even Jesus comes on the scene and says, "Hey, the law, the prophets, and the right, or law, the writings, and the Psalms, the whole Old Testament is about me." Moses wrote about me. You're like, when did Moses mention Jesus? He didn't mention him by name, but he wrote of Jesus. All the uh, New Testament authors they interpret the Old Testament in light of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Well, how does this point to Jesus, and why does that matter? That's what our series has been, and we're going to finish it, but I want to recap it and how every single chapter confronts our own sin and points us to Jesus. And so we'll starting in chapter one, the whole entire story of King Solomon starts off with this enemy-like serpent, Adonijah. Look at verse nine. Adonijah is his brother, and it says that... Um, Verse 9, Adonijah sacrificed sheep, oxen, the fattened cattle by the serpent's stone. So he's hanging out in the ser- serpent's lair. He's kind of like a snake-like figure. If he was in Harry Potter, he would be a part of Slytherin, okay? <laughs> Why? Because he's trying, Adonijah, Solomon's older brother, is trying to usurp the throne. Look at verse 5 in verse chapter 1. Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. 
we see is pride right off the bat. And isn't that what we do? Our whole entire culture, our world, and so much throughout our day, we're always trying to exalt ourselves, our own priorities, our own wants, our own wishes. And when we don't get it, we throw a fit to mom or dad, right? Or we fall into despair because we didn't get what we want. Adonijah, he is, it's all about him. He exalts himself. But at the last minute, David calls Solomon the king and he puts him on his mule and lets him you know, go through the city of Jerusalem and everyone's singing, clapping, and Adonijah hears, what's that commotion? Yeah, David has just called Solomon the king. And so how does this point to Jesus? Well, Jesus is not one that exalts himself. He's the one that humbles himself, unlike us. And much like Solomon, he's put on a donkey and he's walked through Jerusalem and people are shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. And just like Solomon, he's exalted, but not on a throne, on a cross for sinners like you and me. That's chapter one. Chapter two, Solomon is the king and there's threats to the peace. There's all these, these four people are trying. Yes, yeah, so you can turn to chapter two. Good job. And chapter two is all about King Solomon trying to establish the kingdom. How do I know that? Look at 1 Kings 2, verse 46, at the very end. The last verse, the last sentence in chapter 2 tells us what it's all about. So the kingdom, I'll let you turn there. So the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. So chapter 2 is all about him establishing the throne. And the way he establishes the throne is by eliminating his political enemies. But really, they're enemies of God's plan to keep Solomon as king. So there's, there's these enemies that are threatening the peace in God's kingdom. You know what threatens our peace with God? How we can have peace with... That's the whole question of Christianity. Of any religion, how can we have peace with God? That assumes that we're not at peace, right? Why are we not at peace with God? Because of our sin. And so if Jesus is to establish his eternal kingdom with eternal life, then peace must be established. How does he do that? By eliminating the enemies of sin and death. And how did he do that? By dying on the cross to secure our peace. We have been justified by Jesus Christ. Now we have peace with God through Christ's death and resurrection. We, enemies who cause unrest, can now be at peace with God. That's chapter 2. Chapter 3, we'll keep going. We're going to rapid fire here. Solomon, I love this. Look, at, look, how, it, look, look how the narrator characterizes Solomon. Look at verse 3. 1 Kings 3, 3. Solomon loved the Lord. He loved the Lord. Walking in the statutes of David his father. When people think of you, do they say, JT loves the Lord, or so-and-so loves the Lord. Solomon loves the Lord, and he starts, he begins to recognize that he's weak. He can't rule this kingdom unless God helps him. Look at his humility. I love the humility of, of, uh, of Solomon here. God appears to him, and look what Solomon says in verse, uh, verse 7. 
And now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king. See, he's not above, he's, he's a servant. You have made your servant king in the place of David, my father, although I am but a mighty man, a great leader. What does it say? A little child. A teenager, probably early 20s. He, although I'm a little child, and then what does he say? I don't know how to go out or to come in. I don't know how to govern. And your servant is in the midst of your people, verse 8, whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for the multitude. Verse 9, therefore, God, please give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? So God gives him uh, basically a wish. Ask from me and I will give it to you. And he doesn't ask for fame. He doesn't ask for more power to hit a home run or a better shot to hit a three like Steph Curry. Sorry, Maverick fans. I guess I'm sorry. Hey, Luca can come back though. He doesn't ask for fame. He doesn't ask for more followers or riches or wives. He asks the Lord for a heart that listens to God's word, for a listening heart to God's word so that he can govern justly. So we have a king who is not wise in his own eyes. He recognizes his weakness. What about you? This confronts us because we are people who think we are wise in our own eyes. We will march to the beat of our own drum. I'm going to do what I want to do. And no one's going to tell me what to do. And I'm just going to do it. And I'm not going to seek counsel. I'm not going to ask my leaders if this relationship, going into this relationship is good. I'm not going to talk to my parents. I'm going to rely on my friends. I'm going to rely on the wisdom of these influencers on TikTok and Snapchat and Instagram. I'm going to rely on them. Because I know that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all knowledge. And none of these people fear the Lord. Therefore, they don't really have any knowledge for me. But I'm still going to listen to them. We are wise. That's the, that's the heart of the fool. Solomon is not like that. Yet, which we know how it ends. But even more, this points to Jesus, who loved the Lord and walked in his statutes perfectly. And he wasn't just wise. Jesus is Wisdom, as we learn in 1 Corinthians 1.30. He doesn't ask for wisdom. He is the wisdom of God. He is the infinite wisdom. And what was foolishness to the world is that a king would die on a cross. How is, that, how is it the captain of your faith that you put your trust in would then be nailed on the most disgusting thing in the world? That's foolishness. That's what the world says. But what is folly to the world is wisdom, is the wisdom of God. And there Jesus is on the cross, dying for sinners like you and me. That's the wisdom of God. And so that all who put their faith in Jesus now are given a new heart and the spirit to renew our minds, to put on the mind of Christ. We can have wisdom because Jesus is the wisdom. And now by faith, we are united to Christ. Chapter four, then Solomon applies his wisdom he applies his wisdom and brings order. And look what it says about Solomon's wisdom and the results of it. Look at verse 20 in chapter 4. 
Verse 20. So Solomon has given wisdom and there's blessing now. And look at the result of this wisdom. Judah, it says, verse 20, Judah and Israel were many as the sand by the sea. They ate, drank, and were happy. Verse 21, Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. And then it talks about all the food that he provides for his people. Would you say that in your life right now that you are joyful, that you have rest under the rule of God? Solomon is given wisdom and now he's ruling with righteousness and justice and justice. And that is resulting in his people eating and drinking and they're happy. There's rest. And this foreshadows, this points us toward the ultimate rest that we have in Christ, that those who live under the rule of King Solomon's grandson, Jesus Christ, by faith, they can eat. Who do they eat? The bread of life and drink of the living water. We do it every Sunday, really, of the blood, the bread and the cup, right? Communion. We, we feast on Christ by faith. And what does that result in? Joy. But the problem is, is that we want to rule our own lives. We want to be the God of our own lives. We want to do what we want to do. And that's what sin is. And chapter 4 confronts us saying, if you join teams with King Jesus, there will be an abundance of joy, not just temporarily, but for all of eternity, eternal life, for all those who, who come under the rule of Jesus by faith. And so are you living life under the rule of Jesus? What does that look like? Does the word of Jesus come above you or do you stand over it? Come under the rule of King Jesus by trusting in him. That's chapter four. Now we're going to rapid fire here. Chapters five through. So the story progresses. He's bringing order. And now Solomon wants to do what his king, his father never did. And that is build God a house. He's going to build a mansion. God. It's pretty cool. And it's way better than Joanna Gaines could ever do. Fixer Upper, you know, those other sh- shows. What is the other show that used to be real? Move That Bus? What is that called? Extreme Makeover. That's right. Yeah, I used to watch that when I was a kid. It would come on after American Idol. I remember that, like back in the day. Yeah, see, Alex is like, yeah, I remember that. Um, so, Extreme Makeover. Here we go. Chapters 5, 6, and Seven and eight are all about the temple. They're all about the temple. Look at verse chapter five, verses four through five. And this kind of summarizes his heart, Solomon's heart in the next few chapters. First Kings five, four. But now the Lord, my God, has given me rest on every side. It's a fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. But now the Lord, my God, or sorry, but there is neither adversity, adverse. Adversary, did I say that right? Adversary. There's neither adversary nor misfortune. And so I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. As the Lord said to David my father, your son whom I will set on your throne in your place shall build the house for my name. And so chapter five 
Solomon gathers all the supplies for the temple. Chapter 6 is all about the external uh, building of the temple. Chapter 7 is the internal internal furnishing of the temple. And chapter 8 is the benediction of the temple. Now, what is this temple stuff all about? What does it represent? God dwelling with his people, right? That's where it's God's home. And so God is dwelling amidst his people. And when God dwells with his people, there is blessings. There's, there's blessing. And so these chapters are on all, on the building of the temple. They're all about, they're all really pointing to Jesus who said, I am the greater temple. And we learn that every aspect of the temple that we see every piece of furniture, every aspect of it, all points to Jesus. For example, we learned that the temple had two pillars, Boaz and Jachin, right? And that taught the people as they were coming up to the temple, they would be reminded that we approach God through the strength of God, through the power of God. By his strength we come, and by his covenant faithfulness we can come. The temple in the center had the Holy of Holies. And you know what that taught his people? It means that God can't, uh, that God dwells in unapproachable holiness. The Holy of Holies, no one could enter in. That's, exactly, that's where God dwelt. But no one could enter in except for the high priest once a year. Why couldn't the people come? Because God is holy and we are not. Right? Then there's lamps in the temple. What are the lamps all about? They would have reminded the people that God created the heavens and the earth and put the lights in the sky. And then there's these big basins, these little pools everywhere that many of you would like to jump in if you went today, which they're not there, but it'd be kind of cool, right? All these little pools. What did that teach the people? That you need to be washed from your sins. Then there's this altar and the oxen, the golden oxen. What did that teach the people? The, The altar signified death. That the oxen would be slaughtered or the goats or the lambs would be slaughtered for sin. The wages of sin is death. The bread, the table of the bread, reminded them that we feast on, God provides for us, right? The the priests, what did the priests teach the people? That you need someone to be a mediator between God and man. Everything in the temple pointed to Jesus. Jesus is the temple of God, John 2, when he goes and turns over the whole entire temple. And so we ask, how, how can this be? Well, God gives Jesus the name Emmanuel, God with us. God dwelling with his people. Jesus is the better temple. He is the light of the world, just like the lamps. He is the living water, like the water basin. He is the pillars of strength and covenant faithfulness. He is the sacrifice for sins, and he is the priest that mediates between God and man. And so chapters 5, really 6, 7, and 8, they're all pointing to Jesus when he said in Matthew 12, 6, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. God dwelling with his people. How does this confront us? Because sin separates us from a holy God. Why is it that people, that not all people will be in the presence of God in all of eternity? How come some will be sent away, many will be sent away, into everlasting fire and damnation? Because sin plagues every one of our hearts. 
We can't approach God unless we are attached to Jesus Christ by faith. That's the message. And when you die, you will stand before God, either covered in the righteousness of Christ or covered in the filth of your sin. Which is it? And so that's the message. That's what the temple taught the people. Have you been made right before a holy God? Because if not, you will be cut off from God. Just like Adam was. Cut off, banished from the garden, from the temple of Eden, which it was a temple. So we continue on then. Chapter 9. I know we're, we're speeding through this and we'll come to a close. Chapter 9. The Lord graciously appears to Solomon a second time, warning him of the blessings of obedience to the law and the curses for disobedience. God in his grace comes and says, if you obey me, I will establish your law forever, but, or your throne forever. But this is what happens if you don't. Look at verse 7 or 6 in chapter 9. But if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them, and the house that I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight. And Israel will become a proverb and a byword among the peoples. And this house will become a heap of ruins, which it actually did. Everyone passing by it will be astonished and they will hiss. It's kind of weird. And they will say, why has the Lord done this to the land and to the house? They will mock it. And then they will say, because they abandoned the Lord their God who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and laid hold and worshiped other gods and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this disaster on them. Is Solomon going to obey or disobey? He's going to disobey. And all the curses are going to fall on God's people. But this points forward to Jesus, who obeyed the law perfectly, and yet all the curses of sin fell on Jesus for you and me. That's the story of Christianity. That's the good news, though, is that Jesus was cut off. He became a byword. He was abandoned so that we can be brought near. Chapter 10. Chapter 10. The whole entire world is coming to Jesus. Or coming to Jesus. No, not yet. They're coming to Solomon. Spoiler alert. Right? They're coming to Solomon. Look at verses 23 through 24. Solomon's fame, wisdom, and blessings are coming to the nations. And now the nations are coming to him. And it says in verse 23... Thus King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. And the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. And every one of them brought his present. They brought articles of silver and gold, garments, myrrh, spices, horses and mules so much year by year. Believers, isn't that your prayer? That the whole earth would seek the presence of King Jesus to hear his wisdom and that they would come and pay tribute. Sadly, Solomon and thus the people of Israel would break the covenant. 
They would forsake their God. But years later, he would redeem his people through the birth of a little baby in Bethlehem. And here's what's, think about the birth of Jesus for a second. You guys are smart. You guys could do some theology. When Jesus is born, where is he born? Bethlehem in a, in a manger. He's in a feeding trough. Why? Because there is no room in the, no one was ready for this, right? The world was not ready. They were not looking for Jesus. They had no idea. God's people, no idea. Except for a few people come from the east and they pay tribute, right? Who are those people? The wise men, right? We three kings, there's probably more, right? Wise men, these kings from the east come. And what do they bring to Jesus? Gold and myrrh. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So frankincense, did you know, is a spice? It's a very precious spice. What was it that the nations were bringing King Solomon here in verse 25? He brought them presents of articles of silver and gold, garments, myrrh, spices, right? And so we have here, King. this points to King Jesus and these wise men, the only people that could, everyone else was asleep except for these three, these three, these multiple kings that come and pay tribute to Jesus. We live in a society and we by, natu- we by nature give, pay tribute to everything and everyone except for God. Is that the heart of your worship? Who do you pay tribute to with your lives? You're like, I don't have gold, frankincense, or myrrh. That's right. You don't. But you have your heart, your life, your time, your affections, your desires. And do you pay tribute to King Jesus? Or do you just say, hey, there's, n- there's no room in the end of my heart for Jesus. Pass on by. That's 1 Kings chapter 10. And then we get to chapter 11. And we learn that the heart is a factory of idols. So we're coming to a close here. And as we learned last week, that the rise of King Solomon comes to a crashing end as, end as sin erodes his heart. Why did Solomon fall? Because of sin. Sin that he loved, that he cherished in his heart. And we learn that the source of sin, the source of brokenness, the source of murder, envy, strife, the brokenness, the wickedness, the suffering in our world, some of the tragedies that have happened in the past two days in our world. What is the source? It's the heart of man. Jesus said it. He says, out of the heart from within comes murder, comes lies, comes gossip, comes idolatry, comes pride, perversion, sexual immorality. All comes from within. While the whole world is saying, trust your feelings, do what your feelings say, trust your heart. The Bible says the heart is deceitfully wicked. Run from it and run to Christ. (laughs) It's the exact opposite. And we learned that last week, the tragedy of sin. And I told some pretty horrific stories and some good ones. My buddy Jacob that came back to Christ, God pursued him. And here's the crazy thing. You guys, like me, we, when we love to go after the, the things of this world. 
And Solomon literally had everything. And what did it bring him? Absolutely nothing. It brought him to destruction. And so we stopped in verse 14, verse 13. And we didn't finish chapter 11. And this is where we pick up the story. God is placing judgment upon King Solomon and Israel. Look at verse 11. Look at verse 11. Actually, verse 9. Okay, we'll start in verse 9. What is God's response to Solomon's sin? The Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore, this is the key. The Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and give it to your servant. And that's where we ended. And so the question is, if you're think about God's people reading this. They just saw Solomon come to a, a close. They thought he was the chosen one. You were supposed to be the chosen one. Like Anakin, you, you were the chosen one, right? He was supposed, they thought that he brought rest and all this blessing. And he falls and God's people are asking this. They're saying this, this simple question. Will God afflict his people forever? Will he abandon his people because of their sin? Is there any hope? How could this hopeless ending point to Jesus in the gospel? So let's find out. So I'm going to summarize verses 14 and on. So what God does, look at verse 14, is the Lord raises up, it says, and the Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon. God is disciplining Solomon and his people. And this guy's name was Hadad the Edomite. He was the royal, of the royal house of Edom. And all the way down to, to verse 22, basically we learn the backstory of this guy who sought asylum in Egypt when Joab tried to kill all of his clan. And so he is filled with revenge. And he afflicts Solomon and Israel as long as he can. So God raises up Hadad to afflict his people. Verse 23, God also raised up an adversary to King Solomon. Another one, Rezon. 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 All right. The son of Eliada, who had fled from his master, Hadadazer, king of Zobah. So God raises up. Two adversaries, two enemies of Solomon from outside of Israel. Okay, and, and look what it says about him. Verse 24. Rezon gathered men about him and became the leader of a marauding band after the killing by David. And they went to Damascus and lived there and made him king in Damascus. And he was an adversary of Israel all the days of Solomon, doing harm as Hadad did. And he loathed Israel and reigned over Syria. So God raises up these adversaries and then he raises up a third. Look at verse 26. And I'm going to finish the story here. He raises up Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, an Ephraimite of Zerida, a servant of Solomon. So someone on the inside. Whose mother's name was Zerah. A widow also lifted up his hand against the king. And this was the reason why he lifted up his hand against the king. 
Solomon built the millow and closed up the breach of the city of David, his father. The man Jeroboam was very able, very capable leader. And when Solomon saw that the young man was industrious, he gave him charge over all the forced labor of the house of Joseph. And at the time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem, the prophet, or the prophet Ahijah, this prophet comes out of nowhere. Like he's not mentioned in 1 Kings 1 through 11. So Ahijah, the Shilonite, found him on the road. This prophet comes out of nowhere. And it says, now Ahijah had dressed himself in a new garment. And the two of them were alone in the open country. Look at verse 30. Then Ahijah laid hold of, an, of the new garment that was on him. And he tore it into twelve pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself ten pieces, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Behold, I am about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon. And I will give you, Jeroboam, ten tribes. But he, that is the Lord, shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city that I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel. Why is God doing this? God says, because they have forsaken me and worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, a prostitute cult god, and Chemosh, the god of Moab. They sacrificed their children. Terrible, terrible pagan religions. And Milcom, the god of the Ammonites. And they have not walked, God's people have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in my sight and keeping my statutes and my rules, as David his father did. Now here's the good news. Look at verse 34. Nevertheless, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, but I will make him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of David, my servant, whom I chose, who kept my commandments and my statutes. But I will take the kingdom out of his son's hand and will give it to you, Jeroboam, ten tribes. Yet to his son, I will give one tribe that David, my servant, may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I've chosen to, be, to put my name. And I will take you, and you shall reign over all that your soul desires, and you shall be king over Israel. And if you will listen to all that I command you, and will walk in my ways, and do what is right in my eyes, by keeping my statutes and my commandments, as David my servant did, I will be with you. And I will build you a sure house, as I built for David, and will give, you, give Israel to you. Verse 39, this is the key one, circle it. And I will afflict the offspring of David because of this, but not forever. But not forever. Solomon sought, therefore, to kill Jeroboam. But Jeroboam rose and fled to Egypt, to Shishak, king of Egypt, and was in Shishak until the death of Solomon. Now the rest of the Acts of Solomon and all that he did and all of his wisdom, are they not written in the book of the Acts of Solomon? And the time that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was 40 years. And Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, his father. And Rehoboam, his son, reigned in his place. Is there any hope for God's people? Very quickly, two gospel truths are evident in this final section. First, which would have been good news, is that God is sovereign over history. Did you catch this? That God is sovereign over history. God raises up adversaries against his people because of their sin. 
And this would have taught the people that though they have sinned against God, God is still orchestrating all things by the counsel of his will. He is still in control. And God disciplines those whom he loves. And even in this negative aspect of Solomon's reign, we still see that God is in control. His hands are not tied. And so you think your whole life, the tragedies of this world, God is sovereign over all of them. He's in control. He's not the cause of sin, but he's in control. And he's orchestrating all things. Sin cannot thwart his plan. No dictator can thwart his plan. No nation can thwart his plan. You can't thwart his plan. No president can. No activist group. No influencer. No celebrity. No one can thwart his plan. And what's the purpose of his plan? Where is it all heading to? The glorification and exaltation of Christ. He's working all things to that end. Yes, even through the wickedness of this world. For Ephesians 1.11 says that he works all things after the counsel of his sovereign will. We do not believe in a God who is surprised. A God who is weak. Who says, oh no, Solomon tore down the kingdom. Now what am I going to do? That's not the God we serve. He is sovereign. He's in control. And what's the application for you, believer? You can rest in him because he is in control. You are not. What is the thing that gives us anxiety? Why do why we get anxious? It's all the things in our life that we can't control, right? What grade you're going to get on that test, whether you're going to make the team or not, whether you're going to get into that school or get that scholarship, whether or not your parents are going to get upset at you, whether or not you're going to be able to name it. Whatever makes you anxious, it's because it's something you can't control. But you have a God who's in control of all things. And so you need to run to him. And those of you that don't believe in God, you're on your own. You are. You have, no, you, you have nothing to, to, to tie you down that you can lean on. It's up to you. And that's not a place. That only brings despair. The second gospel truth in here is that God sustains his people with future hope. With future hope. You've got to think about it. Solomon was to be the chosen one. And the people are like, oh no. Kingdom's done. But look at verse 39 again. In the midst of turmoil and sadness, what does God say? I will afflict the offspring of David because of this, but not forever. But not forever. For there will be a day when he restores Judah and he restores the kingdom. And he will do this through a promised king. And it wasn't Solomon and it's not Rehoboam. It's not the next king. The people of God will experience exile. They will be banished. They'll be cut off. And hundreds of years later, this prophet guy named Ezekiel will say something very strange. He'll, he, says, and he says, Thus says the Lord, I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them, and he shall feed them with, uh, and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. Now you should ask, wait a second, God. I thought David died. So who is this David shepherd person that you will bring, that you will raise up, that you'll bring your people to that will restore the kingdom? 
Matthew 1.1, 1, 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And Jesus, the greater Solomon, would have a great fall, not fall into sin. A fall from heaven. He was exalted in heaven. But he comes down and he humbles himself down to earth and he would bear all the sins of all God's elect upon himself. He became sin. And so this is the fall and rise of, God, uh, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is all according to plan. God is sovereign over history. So much so that he would send his son to die on the cross for sinners like you and me. That's the message of 1 Kings 1 through 11. The rise and fall of King Solomon points to the fall and rise of God's son and God's people. And that's what it's all about. For those who have received Jesus Christ by faith, we now follow the same pattern of Jesus' life. Matthew 23, 12. Here it is. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Did you hear that? That's the gospel way. It's not by trying. It's not by your good works. The way up is down. It's through suffering, through pain, through the cross, through Christ, that we are exalted. That's the hope of the world. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the hope. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus humbled himself and was exalted on a cross. And then exalted as the king of kings. And all those who call themselves followers of Jesus will follow the same pattern. And if not, you, need, you will be humbled for all of eternity in hell separated from God. And so the message is this. Come to King Solomon's great grandson named Jesus and come to him by faith. Enter into eternal rest. That dark night quote. Every man who has rotted here over the centuries has looked up to the light and imagined climbing to freedom. That's the message of the dark night. But the message of the gospel is this. Every man and woman on earth has rotted here because of their sin for centuries. Your only hope is to look up to the light and not imagine climbing to freedom, but looking to Jesus who comes down to save rotten sinners and bring them to freedom. You're in the pit of despair and your only hope is for Jesus to come down and he did that for you. This is the fall and rise of Jesus. And those who are in Christ Jesus by faith, they will rise with him. They will rise with him. And so, that's the question. Are you in Christ Jesus by faith? That's the message. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for this sermon series, Lord. We just confess our need for you. Thank you so much for...